Amen. How many of you have seen the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Raise your hand. Wow, more than I thought. All right, Doris and Chuck back there. That's cool. No, I no, no, I, I didn't. I don't expect anything different. That's cool. Well, um, for those of y'all that haven't, which it seems like most of you have, it's a it's a popular movie from the '80s about a high school student named Ferris Bueller who fakes being sick so he can skip a day of school and spend the day with his friends in the city of Chicago. Watch this clip real quick from the movie. Well, got sound on. Stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. What is so dangerous about a character like Ferris Bueller is he gives good kids bad ideas. Why should he get to skip school when everybody else has to go? Syphilitic meningitis. He never gets caught. This guy in my biology class said that if Ferris dies, he's giving his eyes to Stevie Wonder. Well, he's very popular, Ed. I recall Central Park in fall. Ferris Bueller, do you know him? Yeah, he's getting me out of summer school. They think he's a righteous dude. Think he'll be alive this weekend? I can see him denying popular beliefs, setting off on some impossible mission jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body. He does whatever he wants. You know, as long as I've known him, everything works for him. Whatever he wants. He's very cool. And he never gets nailed. Ferris can do anything. Oh, he's such a sweetie. Wake up and smell the coffee, Mrs. Bueller. It's a fool's paradise. He is just leading you down the primrose path. Matthew Broderick. Bueller. Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller's day off. All right. No telling how many times I've seen that, that movie growing up, because when I was young, to me, there was, there was no one cooler than Ferris Bueller. He truly lived by his own set of rules, and even though I was nothing like him, I wanted to be exactly like him. And, and I'm speaking to guys here this morning. Guys, just be honest. I mean, we've, we've all had, at one time or another growing up, those, those characters, those rebellious characters that we've been drawn to, on TV or in the movies, right? Maybe it was this guy, James Dean. Any of y'all think you're James Dean? Growing up, rebel without a cause. Or what about this guy? Hey, the Fonz. You want to be, y'all didn't want to be like the straight-laced Richie Cunningham, right? You want to be like the Fonz. You come in, snap your fingers, the girls run, come running, you hit the jukebox, your favorite song starts playing. Yeah, and the Fonz, he's just, he's just cool, right? What about this guy? Yeah, now, now we're talking. Clint Eastwood, although a lot of times he was on the right side of the law, he lived by his own rules in most of his movies, right? One of, one of his uh, favorite characters that he played uh, that, that I enjoyed the most was Josie Wales and the outlaw Josie Wales. I remember the first time I watched that movie, I just thought, man, he is the coolest guy on the planet and uh, wanted to be just like him. Well, why are, we, why are we drawn to these types of characters? Here's why. I think because deep down, we think that there is joy to be had in rebellion, in being the, in being the rebel, in living life by our own set of rules. And let's be honest, that's what many people 
uh, that's, that's the issue many people have with the Christian faith, right? They view the Christian faith as just being this long, endless list of rules and view God as just being this strict disciplinary and just ready to smack us when we get out of line. And many don't like the Christian faith for this reason. And in this series, uh, what, what I've told you time and time again in this series is, there are some obvious places where most people look to find joy. But what Paul shows in the book of Philippians is that joy is in fact found in some unlikely places and under some unlikely circumstances. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning is no exception to that. What we're going to learn this morning from, from the passage, and if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in, looking at verses 12 through 18 this morning. What we're going to learn this morning is though obedience is a necessary mark of the believer, it does not result in a life of misery, but in a life of joy. Paul is clear that there is joy to be had in obedience. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, experiencing joy through obedience. Here's the first principle. If you want to experience joy through obedience... You're going to have to work hard outwardly because God is at work inwardly. And put this in parentheses under this point, because this, this may not make sense to you now, but it will when we explain the point. Don't just stand there and don't just do something. So, so put this point down and then in parentheses underneath it put, don't just stand there and don't just do something. Let's look at verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, as we've talked about before, Paul is in prison. And he is uncertain about when he's going to see the Philippians again. And he promises them in chapter 1, he says, whether I'm with you or I'm, I'm absent, live worthy of the gospel. And he tells them to stand firm. And remember we talked about that, the importance of, of us being men and women of integrity, even when no one's watching. And that's what Paul was telling them to do. Whether I'm with you or not, stand firm. And he says something similar here in these verses of Scripture. He says, I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to see you again, but in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this is one of those verses where some groups, they love to cling to this verse, and others want to avoid it like the plague. Because let's be honest, we change one word in that verse of Scripture, we turn our, our theology on its head, don't we? But notice, Paul doesn't say, work up your salvation or work at your salvation, or work for your salvation, which would turn our grace-based theology upside down, right? That teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Paul says something different here. He says, work out your salvation. Remember, Paul is, is speaking to believers here. And when he says, work out your salvation, this is what he's urging the Philippians to do. He's saying, in light of having been forgiven and being made right with God, Prove that God has saved you in the past by living like it in the present. When I was growing up and I was acting out, which I often was doing when I was young, my mom would ask me, how old are you? And I'd 
tell her, and then she'd say, then act like it. Right? You ever, y'all ever use that? I use it now. Then act like it. And this is kind of what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, God has saved you, so act like it by working out your salvation. Paul is clear here that Christian maturity is not something that just happens. It's not something we can just wait idly by for and all of a sudden, boom, and just one day it happens and we're mature in Christ. Paul is clear that it takes work. He is clear that, that godliness is something to be pursued. That word work, when he says work it out, you know what that word means? It means bear down, bring it about. In other words, to be what God has called you to be, it takes work, hard work. Texas Longhorns had a rough year in football, haven't they? Saw their basketball team's looking good, so maybe that'll... I'll be able to wear the shirt with pride. Um, but they've had a rough year. That's putting it lightly, right? But do you know when, uh, before they had lost a game, after, after they had uh, beaten Rice, Mac Brown noticed there's something, there was just something amiss with the football team. So he sits him down, and he basically tells them there's too much arrogance on this team. He said, just because you play for one of the top football programs in the country, just because you walk out on the field each day and you have Texas on your jersey and the Longhorn on the side of your helmet, doesn't mean you're just going to have games handed to you. Doesn't mean you're just going to have the victory. The victory is just going to come to you. You're going to have to put in the work. You're going to have to work for it. And that's what Paul, his message is similar here. He wants the Philippians to realize you can't and shouldn't just sit back and do nothing when it comes to your spiritual maturity and expect something to happen, but instead, work it out. Not only that, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a little different than pride and arrogance, right? We see that sometimes, don't we? People thinking, oh, I got this. Spiritual life, no, no problem, you know? But Paul says, work it out with fear and trembling. What he wants the Philippians to realize is this. You are spiritually weak, and the power of temptation is extremely strong. Therefore, you need to proceed with caution. With this in mind, knowing that you are not above messing up and you're not above failure, you need to, in fear and trembling, be working out your salvation. Now let's look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, what do we do with that? Didn't Paul just tell us that we're to be working out our salvation? And then in this verse of Scripture, he says, for it is God who's working in you. What are we to do with that? How do we as a church honor God, and how do we grow in godliness? Is it by human effort, or is it by God's grace? What we have here is a a paradox in Scripture, and a a paradox just simply means it's it's when a statement is seemingly contradictory but is in fact true, and we have a lot of those in Scripture, don't we? For example, God is one, right? God is also three. God is sovereign, yet man is responsible. Jesus Christ is fully God, And he's also fully man. 
And here we have one here. To be made complete in Christ, you're going to have to work it out. And God is at work in you. And, and what many people often do when they approach these paradoxes, which is the wrong way to handle it, is they, they land on one side or another. Or they emphasize one at the sake of another. And they've done that with this verse here in Philippians. There are some that are called the pietists. And what they do is they say, spiritual growth is all on my shoulders. It's up to me. God's out of the picture. It's up to me to become mature in Christ. And then there's the other group who land on this side. The quietists is what they're called. And and they basically say, it's all on God. It's not up to me. It's all on God. So they take extremes even to this. Now, here's the problem. Here's the issue with, with... overemphasizing one at the sake of another or landing on one at the sake of another is that when I'm over here, what I then have to do is completely disregard or explain away verses that land over here. You see what I'm saying? For example, let's say I was going to land on God is one. Scripture clearly says God is one then what I have to do is either exclude or attempt to explain away all those verses that that say that God exists in more than one person, in three distinct persons. So avoid these two extremes. So what are we to do with the paradox? The proper way to handle a paradox is we affirm both in measure. So what's the answer here? Are we complete in Christ by God's grace or by human effort? The answer is yes. We affirm both. We affirm both. For us to be what God has called us to be, we're going to have to put forth the work. We're going to have to put forth effort. We can't wait idly by to be made mature in Christ, but we've got to work hard and pursue it. But you know what? We also have to see our need of God's grace and be completely dependent upon Him to work in us so we can work outwardly. Would you say Paul worked pretty hard at becoming mature in Christ? I'd say so. And you know what? When he was looking at what he had become, you know what he concluded? He concluded this. 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God, I am what I am. So were it not for God's grace, you know what, we would not, you would not be where you are spiritually. But you know what? Also, apart from you putting in the work and pursuing godliness, you cannot get to where you need to go spiritually. It's a both end. Which one do you lean more toward? Activity or passivity? Do you put more on your shoulders than what you should? Or do you put it all off on God? You come across both. Um, I was driving not too long ago, and I read a bumper sticker that said, God is my co-pilot. That's a pietist attitude, isn't it? I'm in the driver's seat, and God's just there if I need him. And then the, uh, the, the quietist, their, their favorite catchphrase is this, I can't ever be what, I wanna, what God wants me to be, so what I'm going to do is just give up and let go and let God. Y'all have heard those, haven't you? But Paul says that both of these are off. God is in the driver's seat. He is behind it all. He is the one who began a good work in us, and He is the one who will bring it to completion, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. 
But he does not call us to be passive. He wants us to work out what he is working in us. So there you go. Don't just stand there. And don't just do something. Go forward by the grace of God. Second point, if we want to experience joy through obedience. I've got the clicker here. Have the right attitude because the world is watching. Have the right attitude because the world is watching. Paul says this, do all things without grumbling or questioning. I'm, I'm sure many of y'all have heard the, the phrase before, actions speak louder than words, right? What Paul shows here is that attitudes speak louder than actions. And we know this to be true, don't we? How many of y'all have been at a, at a department store or a hardware store and you know you're in that certain section and you need help and you have to press the button or ask somebody to go get someone and somebody just kind of comes, don't even talk to you or maybe they're, they're rude to you. They just kind of help you and then they go on their way. It's funny how we don't appreciate that very much, do we? Even though they helped us. And why is that the case? Because attitudes speak louder than actions. And that's Paul's point here. Paul is, is telling the Christians at Philippi not to simply obey, but he's showing them what obedience is supposed to look like. He tells them, everything you do, do it without grumbling or bickering or arguing. In other words, serve God with a smile. And I know that sounds cheesy, but that's kind of what Paul's getting at here. See, the problem with the Christians at Philippi was not that they, they weren't doing the right things. Paul has clearly praised them for their continual obedience and, and faithfulness and, and the fact that they have been a continued partner of Paul throughout the years. So he, he, it's not that they weren't doing the right things. The issue that Paul shows here is that the Philippians were doing the right things with the wrong attitudes. We often don't think of bickering as being a very major thing, do we? I mean, in our relationships, just in general, it's like, ah, uh, you know, at least I don't have that problem over there. In our church, maybe we have some bickering going on, but at least we don't have a major scandal like, the, like some church somewhere else. And, and we just don't think of bickering and, and arguing as being a bad thing. And of course, no church wants the big scandal issues, of course. But believe me when I say that bickering and arguing can tear our relationships and our church apart. I've spoken with people and I've heard of situations where you have a broken relationship where both sides are, despise one another. And you would think, man, something major must have happened for them to be just so hateful toward each other. And you know what I found out in certain situations? That it's come from years and years of bickering and arguing and unresolved conflict. It can tear relationships apart. If believers are constantly arguing and bickering and complaining, you know what's going to happen? One, we're, we're not going to be effective in what we do in ministry. Two, we're going to be disunified. And if it builds up over the years, it can tear a church apart. Don't underestimate how devastating that can be. 
Paul also goes on to explain another reason why believers should serve God with gladness and without dispute is not just for their sakes, but for the sake of the watching world. Verse 15, he says, Be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The reason why it's imperative for the church to have the right attitude as long as, uh, along with the right actions and be pure and blameless is because we are representatives of God in a world that's hostile toward him. Here Paul is clear that the Christians at Philippi, they need to clean up their act in order to be an effective witness in the world. And he, his advice for the church is summed up in this phrase. Be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Now know that Paul is not telling them, you need to be perfect. Paul would not ask them to be something that he was not. Here's the point he's getting at. He is saying you need to be above reproach as a church. And what that means is without accusation. In other words, you don't need to give the watching world what it's looking for. You don't need to be what the world expects you to be. Does that make sense? And then he goes on to say, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul's point is clear here. When the church is blameless and pure, what happens is they bring the truth of the Christian message to light in the same way the stars light up the darkness of the night. This is what Jesus said. He told those who believe in him, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You know, most people have an opinion of the church, don't they? And it's normally not a good one, is it? And they're looking to be justified in their way of thinking. And this is my prayer for us as a church. When we as a church are put under the microscope of an unbelieving world, and when they're looking in, which they will, my prayer is that we as a church would be without accusation, that we would be above that, that we would not give the world what it's looking for, and that we would not be what the world expects us to be. In verse 16, Paul goes on to say, he gives a pastoral plea here. He says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul's been saying all these things that he wants to see happen with the church and then he, he, he says that he does not want all the time and effort that he spent with the Philippians to be in vain. Now this is not a selfish plea. This, is a, this reveals Paul's pastoral heart. In this verse, he shows his deep desire for the Philippians to stop grumbling and complaining and be unified so he can know that all this time was not spent with them for nothing. And I can honestly stand before you and tell you today that that's what I want. That's what I want. I don't want you to live godly lives for my sake so that I'll have some sense of, of accomplishment as a pastor. And ultimately, I don't want you to do it just so we'll gain notoriety in the community as a church, even though it's great to be known for that. 
Ultimately, what I would love to see happen to each and every one of you is that you would come to live as fully and as faithfully for God as possible for your sakes so that you can live lives of joy. And my prayer for this church is that this church would be above criticism, that we would would not give the world what it's looking for for the sake of making an impact in this community for the cause of Christ. Third and finally, you want to experience joy through obedience? Know that obedience, though it involves sacrifice, brings joy. Now, I know many of you may be thinking, okay, we've heard this point before, you know. This point's been made several times, hasn't it? We know serving God is costly, but it brings joy. And the reason why I continue to make this point is because Paul continues to make this point. And a a rule of thumb, when you're reading the Scriptures, if something is said once, you need to hear it. But if it's said more than a few times, we need to really pay attention and receive it and emphasize it and apply it. Paul wants us to get this. He is clear once again, there is joy in obedience. There is joy in sacrificial service. He says this, But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul's language here is the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system. A drink offering was a a type of offering used in the Old Testament in the Greco-Roman world. It didn't involve pouring out wine onto the ground or onto the altar over a, a food or grain offering. And Paul explains here that this kind of sacrifice vividly illustrates how he has been poured out for God's Service And the very fact that Paul is continuing to minister in prison, uncertain of, of what's going to happen to him, and the very fact that he ends up giving his life for the cause of Christ proves that Paul viewed his life exactly in this way. And notice that not only he, but the, but the Christians at Philippi were sacrificing. He says here, I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. So both were sacrificing for the kingdom. With that being said, does Paul then conclude, does he say, as a result of the sacrificial service, I gripe and complain and urge you to do the same? What does he say? Paul says, I rejoice and I share my joy with you and urge you to do the same. There is joy to be had in a life lived for God, even in the midst of difficulty. I said a few weeks ago, many people, when they hear sacrifice and opposition and suffering, they just say, count me out, you know? They want Christianity without those things. But herein lies the problem. A life lived for God in obedience to Him is not void of suffering. But even though that's the case, The good news is there is joy to be had in the midst of difficulty. Before we close, I want to end by sharing with you a a story. Leslie will tell you she's not in here, but she'd be shaking her head. I am uh, terrible with directions. 
I am. I mean, it's, it's oftentimes I try to go out on a limb, and, and Jim and I are kindred spirits in this way. Uh, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and, and think I can cut off 10 minutes off a trip, and I'll end up adding 30 to our trip. It's just a bad thing. And uh, for that reason, uh, one of the best gifts ever given to me was from Leslie's parents. They got us a Garmin one year, a GPS. So now I can drive around. I finally know what it means to drive around with confidence, knowing I'm going to get a place, you know, and get to a place. It may take me a while. And many of you may have a good sense of direction and can get there quicker than me, but I'm going to get there eventually. But every now and again, some, I'll just get a crazy hair and I'll think, hey, I... I know a quicker way. Let's go off the Garmin for just a little bit, and then I'll flip it on, and, and we'll save about 10, 15 minutes. And we did that a while back. We were leaving Fort Smith and headed somewhere in Texas, so I was like, I know a quicker way to Oklahoma, and then we'll flip on the Garmin, and, and it may save us a little bit of time. Well, we got lost. Yeah, in, out of Fort Smith, we got lost. You know, just right outside. you think I'd have that area down. Uh, and I ended up getting lost, and I turned on the garment. You know what it did? It ended up taking me right back the way it told me to go the first time. So we basically just drove around for 20 minutes. But here's the point of the story. You know what? Sometimes I think that going against the garment, going at a trip on my own, is going to result in better results and bring joy. But you know what it you know what happens with me? It results in a greater frustration and in misery. And the same is true of those looking to find joy in rebellion. The most joyful Christians that I've ever met, even though they've been through tough times and sacrifice, are those who are living full and faithful lives for God. You know what, on the flip side of that, some of the most miserable Christians I've met are those who are choosing to go at life on their own and failing to be what God has called them to be. You and I were made for God. And listen, we will not be complete until we live for Him. And you know what? We cannot live for Him until we know Him. And the only way we can know Him is through His Son. By trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you can have a restored relationship with God and experience all the joy that comes in a life lived for Him. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us for our rebellious hearts. Forgive us for the many times that we have rejected your rule and reign in our lives. God, I'm reminded of when you first created the world. You created all the creatures, man especially, in under your rule and reign. In perfect obedience we lived with you. And it was, as you said, very good. Show us today that that's still the case, God. Forgive us of our rebellious hearts. Remind us daily of the great joy to be had in a life lived for you. In Jesus' name, amen.